Hello, and welcome to episode two of our podcast, Unmapped, an epistolary exploration of co-creativity. In the first episode, we began to explore our ideas around co-creativity. We discussed the emphasis on creative process and in-the-moment experiences. We also reflected on the inherent riskiness, but also possibility of letting go of plans and stepping into the unknown. We touched upon working creatively with the arts with people living with dementia and our experiences of connection, communication and creativity with them. In this next exchange of letters, we reflect upon the potential for equality that a co-creative approach might make more possible, and in particular the role of improvisation. We also question what might be understood or valued as participation and discuss the notion that artists themselves can benefit and grow through working co-creatively alongside others. Sixth of March, 2017. Dear Julian, in the spirit of travelling to a new land, I've been rereading Gulliver's Travels, which always makes me smile. Gulliver is very good at offering apparently accurate coordinates for the lands that he visits, and also just enough detail about the voyages so that they seem entirely plausible. We had not travelled above three days when a great storm arising, we were driven five days to the north-northeast and then to the east, after which we had fair weather. That's from part three, a voyage to Laputa. I hope that we don't encounter many storms on our travels, but I like the sense that we have to pay attention to our direction and may not have total control over this, and yet appreciate the necessary element of happenstance and serendipity that might wash us ashore in strange places, like the world of business studies. Who knows, we might be completely reduced in size and therefore see everything that seems to be familiar from a new perspective. As Gulliver observes when he lands in Brobdingnag, nothing is great or little otherwise than by comparison. You mentioned the importance of the transfer of value from product to shared process, and this is certainly something that was emphasised by all the artists that we have spoken to. In particular, the observations of Gavin Critchley from Active Inquiry are resonant he noted that when he makes theatre, and this might not always be with people with a dementia, the participants have an equal share in the form and content and that there is no predefined shape to whatever is created. There is a rel relative lack of emphasis on the outcome. Similarly, Magdalena from Hearts and Minds talked about creating a process using the arts to enable people living with dementia to be co-authors. In both these accounts, there is a sense that artistic practice is a means of meeting people where they are and offering alternative ways of communicating, rather than imposing a predefined structure onto interactions. I like the idea that this allows for a proper conversation, which may have unforeseen twists and turns, rather than a monologue or speech, which I agree also have their place and value. Perhaps co-creativity is one way of listening attentively, just as poetry involves detailed observation and offers new ways of seeing. Like you, I have also been inspired by Francois Matarosso, 
and in particular, recently, by a blog post that you sent me about jazz with young people in one of Paris's most deprived banlieues. This has helped me think about co-creativity in terms of connections of shared experience, hybridity and improvisation. Above all, I was struck by the equality he notes exists between all the participants. This must be very hard to achieve in reality. As an artist friend of mine said recently, even the word participant evokes a power relationship. She was talking about work that she had done many years ago with adults with cognitive problems, and her main recollections were about some of the ethical difficulties she encountered. For instance, who owns the finished work? Who decides how or even where it should be displayed? I guess the difficulties of achieving true co-creation with any group are also worth considering. When I was talking to Andrea Capstick about her use of participatory video techniques with people with a dementia, she made a distinction between collaborative work, in which video was used with people with a dementia, but for a distinct purpose, to create learning materials, and a more co-creative project, in which people had direct control over the process and content. This co-creative project involved a great deal of time, detective work and intuitive listening. I get the impression that it was not easy or straightforward as a process, and in Andrea's words, it didn't go exactly as planned. I suspect that talking more with those who work in this way about the problems they encounter might be as useful as examining the achievements or potential of co-creativity. The mention of hybridity in Francois's blog evokes for me a sense of collage, the grafting together of many different elements, or voices, or gestures, or marks, to make something new, an assemblage of forms to which all participants were able to contribute. The role of improvisation also seems especially significant. Perhaps this is what is most risky about some co-creative practice. This resonates with your comments about how you and the other artists interacted with people during the Living Arts Project without prior planning or preparation and that this allowed you to respond with spontaneity, reflexivity and courage. I'm also reminded of Amy May's description of the fear she felt working without a plan. However, if there had been a plan, she might not have responded to the mood of the group as she did on one memorable occasion with a prolonged and beautiful piece of entirely improvised music. Gavin Critchley stressed the importance of improvisation as being freeing, in that it allows in-the-moment creation. There is nothing to be learnt, no distinct offering that is expected of either the artists or the participants. Similarly, Magdalena noted that improvisation was integral to clowning and created a level playing field between the clowns and the participants. The thought that improvisation can create a certain equality between those involved in a project is interesting. I'm not sure what I think about this, After all, artists, particularly actors, but musicians too, are used to ad-libbing. And this might be something that is daunting for others, 
who are faced with an instrument or the prospect of making a play or indeed interacting with clowns for the first time. On the other hand, feeling that there are no rules, that whatever is offered is right, can be liberating for all involved. So perhaps successful improvisation is necessarily linked with the wider context in which co-creation takes place. For instance, perhaps if the environment feels safe, secure and responsive, then people find it easier to freely contribute or improvise. On the other hand, the visual artist Lisa Carter didn't attach any special importance to improvisation in her practice, merely noting that it is one of many ways that she works with people with a dementia. Equally, Andrea Kapstick observed that improvisation was sometimes difficult, as people with dementia can find it hard to think on their feet, and so prompts were developed during the filmmaking process. I suppose the relative importance of improvisation depends on the art form and the artist, but for everyone we have talked to, a lot of flexibility seemed an essential part of the process. In his blog, Francois also states that everyone has something important and unique to offer. This reminds me of one of the reasons that I was so moved after every living arts session that I attended. I always felt a sense of privilege to have been there. This was because the ways in which you and the other artists were responding to people allowed me a heightened awareness of the importance and uniqueness of each individual. So we became aware of C's drumming skills. I could suddenly see him as a young man in a band in the Caribbean. And that Jay was once a choir master and could still sing beautifully. The abilities of those who participated were vividly apparent in each session, including E's loud disdain for the activities, which was, after all, a form of engagement. Although this also brings to mind a comment that my friend and colleague Lucy Burke recently made about how strongly she believes that some people with a dementia don't want to take part in arts projects, whether these are co-creative or not. Of course, it must be accepted that not everyone wants to contribute, but I guess that this is connected with listening carefully and working sensitively with those in a group. In your email, you mentioned the ways in which you drew upon your musical skills. This prompts me to wonder about the particular role of the professional artist. Once again, Francois is enlightening. He mentions that in the jazz concert, if the driving musical ideas came from the professional artists, they were shaped by the contributions and responses of those who were meeting jazz for the first time. The result was a musical co-creation of the first order. This is echoed by Magdalena, who made the point that the elderflower clowns, who are all trained actors, provide a starting point for individuals with a dementia, and that subsequently the stories are developed together or co-authored. So maybe an artist who has a close relationship to their art form, is used to thinking with and through it, might provide a starting point or an idea that is then moulded by participants. And as you say, the trick is possibly in being able to let go of material and move on. 
I wonder if this is about working in synchronicity with people and is partly what makes co-creative practice difficult, but also so inspiring. I also love and am inspired by the thought that we can all continue to be involved in a self-making process, that we don't become static or defined simply by our memories, just because we have reached a certain age. In the four quartets, T.S. Eliot writes, Old men ought to be explorers. Here or there does not matter. We must be still, and still moving into another intensity. The thought of being able to continue exploring and so move into another intensity, regardless of our ages, fills me with hope. The idea that we share our unfolding investigation publicly via a blog is a good one, although it makes me a little nervous. I wonder if it will affect how or what I write, which at the moment is with only you in mind, rather than a wider audience. However, I do like the idea that people could comment as our mapping continues and even contribute to this. Another thought is that our letters, emails, could form the basis for a presentation at the Hub. I think we're meeting at 9.30 on Wednesday the 15th of March, so we can discuss all this and continue our conversations. I will be so interested to hear about Amy May's project, which might also provide real opportunities for co-creativity. In the meantime, my warmest wishes as ever, Hannah. Twenty third of March, twenty seventeen. Dear Hannah, it's taken me quite a while to digest your last email and to respond to it. Since receiving it, quite a lot has happened. Not least, our friend Francois published his blog post entitled "Co-Creativity," in which he set out three distinctions in participatory arts practice. The description of co-creativity that he suggests does correspond closely with our thoughts and the thoughts and insights offered by the artists that we spoke to. I think that the most salient point he makes is that in a co-creative process, quotes, the producer-consumer distinction is erased, close quotes. I find this really challenging and it makes me consider my own creative work with people living with a dementia. My desire is to aim for co-creation and equality, but I am very much aware of also being viewed as a leader and or expert by the group. With this very much on my mind, we had the second session at Aspen Court of the project to explore the possibilities of using digital instruments as part of a creative workshop and whether they would be useful for people living with a dementia in finding increased self-expression. We're working with very small numbers of residents and in the team's desire to allow as much opportunity for them to input into the creative process, we are holding back to such an extent that the weight of expectation upon the residents at times felt too much. I'm also thinking about your comments in your last email, questioning the notion that improvisation creates a level playing field. Even when we don't have written down notes to play, Musicians do have a language in which they are well-versed, even when not actually playing our main instruments. I feel very confident to play a rhythm on a drum, for example. I feel confident that I will maintain a steady pulse, that I will judge the volume sensitively, 
and that I can play in a way that is in keeping with any music that is already happening. All of these were things that seemed to worry the residents and that inhibit them, on top of any perceptual challenges they may be facing as a result of their dementia. Successful musical moments seemed to come from the musician team supplying a bed of sound and rhythm that the residents could join and then influence, either consciously or unconsciously. This is similar to Matarasso's description of the process he witnessed in the jazz projects in Paris, but I'm not sure that I feel it to be co-creative. In the project that Francois describes, I presume that all of the participants had signed up for being part of the process and had an understanding of the language being used, i.e. jazz. When working with people living with a dementia, and especially those living in care homes, I'm not sure that this is always the case. People might be invited to take part in the music project, but everyone's anticipation of what this might entail is likely to be very different and probably veers towards listening to others performing. I think that we did make one truly co-creative piece this morning when one of the residents told us about how much travelling he had done in his lifetime. He had travelled, he said, thousands and thousands of miles and had driven or piloted almost every kind of vehicle that we could imagine. Freed from the expectation to take part by playing an instrument, he talked at great length and with animation of his experiences. As his story unfolded, I sang some of his words back to him, with Amy supplying harmonic support on her viola, and Verhaken creating a carpet of sound digitally. It seemed as though we had all finally found a way to work creatively together, with each person contributing in the way that best suited them. The producer-consumer distinction was erased. Reflecting on this, I think that the point about the term participant being in itself laden with an implied power relationship is very interesting. It seems quite demeaning unless we consider each person involved as a participant. This for me throws up questions of what we even mean by participation. Does sitting at the table with eyes closed, head bowed, making no contact with other people count? Is being present enough? One lady this morning sat with us like this for around 45 minutes and her presence most definitely had an effect upon the group. Whilst remaining respectful, we did try to coax her into speaking or playing an instrument. Is this coercion? At the moment, I'm really not sure. When asked whether she wanted to stay at the table with us, she said very clearly that she did. It was very interesting that her chosen mode of participation made many in the group feel uncomfortable, those affected by dementia and those not. Thank you for the paper by Jin Lin He that you sent me this week about co-creativity in Chinese art. I found the description quite moving and certainly something close to Matarasso's definition with references to the requirements of mutual openness and reciprocity. She also describes the emphasis being on the art-making process rather than the product, and allowing for shifting perspectives that exist alongside each other. I was especially struck by the phrase, the artist is not just a creator, but is also created. I can say with certainty that through the creative work I have undertaken with people living with a dementia, that they have certainly had a hand in creating me. 
I can recall several times when I have been called upon to produce something musically that was beyond my existing palette. Each time this has been asked of me, I feel that I have grown both personally and artistically, if there is a distinction. When working in the moment through improvisation, I have sometimes had to take a leap of faith in attempts to meet my collaborator in the place it seems they want to go to. I'm in no doubt that my collaborators also do this for me as well. When this is done to the, to the satisfaction of both parties, then the feeling is quite profound of having risen to a challenge and to have found an understanding together. Like Gulliver, perhaps, we have been blown off course and find ourselves in a new place. Best wishes, Julian. Thank you very much for making it to the end of this episode, the second episode of our podcast, Unmapped. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, then um, do share it with others who you think might find it interesting. And if there's more you'd like to know about us, then do take a look at our website, unmapped.org.uk.